But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find in the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the, the privilege of fellowship and the privilege of coming together. Thank, I think you've reached one that is here this morning and, and pray that uh, our time together would be honoring to thee and pleasing to thee. I, I pray it would be instructive to our, our minds. I, I, I pray it would be helpful to our, our thinking process, Lord, about the Christian life and, and uh, living for thee and, and just uh, helping us in our own walk with you. So I, I pray that you would help me by your Holy Spirit to convey your word in a way that is honoring to thee, in a way that is pleasing to thee, and in a way that is, is helpful and good for our souls. It's instructive to our minds and therefore edifying to our hearts and uh, will, will guide us in our, our walk with you. So we just commit our time to you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, this is our third lesson in this area of the, um, the, the fifth chapter of London Baptist Confession of Faith on the subject of God's providence. First study, well, paragraph one, we dealt with uh, foundational issues related to the theme of the basic idea of God's providence upholding and governing all his people and all their actions. And then we consider the, the extent or the comprehensiveness of God's providence in many different areas. And then in our our second study, in paragraph 2 and 3, we considered the theme that God uses uh, second causes, laws of nature, and the activities of men. In this connection, we spoke also of this term concurrence, um, which Burkhoff puts it like this, the cooperation of divine power with all subordinate powers according to the pre-established laws of their operation, causing them to act um, precisely as they do, but that is not destructive of human liberty. Um, Sam Waldron, his very helpful exposition of the 1689 Confession, uh, entitles in paragraphs 4, 5, and 6, um, the relation of providence to the fact of sin. The relation of providence to the fact of sin. And paragraph 4, to sin in general. Paragraph 5, to sin in his children and then paragraph sin, excuse me, paragraph six, sin and the ungodly. So the relation of providence to the fact of sin. Uh, this morning, our, our emphasis is going to be especially on, on paragraph five, um, which has to do with sin in his children or remaining sin. Uh, the fact that still that sin is still an issue in, in, in Christian people. So that's kind of what we'll emphasize this morning. So it's the providence of God over the fact of remaining sin. That's the basic theme. And I thought the way that we would approach it, I'm going to look at a couple of texts of Scripture that just deal with the reality or the fact of remaining sin. And then we'll look at two sections of Scripture that especially deal with God's providence as it relates to remaining sin in Christian believers. And then as we would have time, just two or three lessons that we could extract uh, from that this morning. So um, we'll be back to Romans here in, uh, in a moment. But turn, if you would, to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Uh, just two passages that relate to the idea... That, that it is a reality. There is remaining sin in the life of, uh, of Christian believers. 
In 1 John chapter 1, and verses 8 through 10, I think it's a helpful passage that makes the point. 1 John chapter 1, and verses 8 through 10, um, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And one of the things that is fascinating here is the Apostle John includes himself. We see, he says over uh, more than one time, if we. So this is the Apostle John. It's quite amazing because he was uh, close to the Lord. Uh, he was with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was part of the inner three. Uh, he wrote much of the New Testament. Uh, the Gospel of John, of course, is profound. And he says, if we say that, we have no sin. So he includes himself in this description. Um, and according to this, not to embrace the reality of remaining sin is to deceive ourselves. So the, the, the means of dealing with remaining sin is not denial, but it is to confess our sins. And just uh, one other point in this, in this respect, it's interesting to note that this, uh, this particular letter has to do with joy. Notice verse 3, what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So that, that's the goal, fellowship and joy. And then it's fascinating. You get down to verse 7, and that there's mention of sin in verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 2, and verse 2. So that's pretty negative with respect to the whole idea of joy. But you see how important it is that as Christian believers, we know, we admit to the reality of remaining sin, and then we know how to deal with the reality of remaining sin. So 1 John is one of the texts of Scripture that I think is very helpful just to make the point of remaining sin. Then if you would just turn back to the section Romans that I, I read a few moments ago, Romans chapter 7. Um, of course, part of the problem here is, um, uh, I'll just say up front, I... Uh, um, my objectivity is probably a little bit skewed because I'm Puritanized, and I've read so many Puritans, and they all understand this primarily as referring to Paul's regenerate man, and there are some Christians who believe that this, this is not in reference to that, so I'm just I'm clearly in the Paul writing as a regenerate man camp. Um, and verse 17 refers to indwelling sin. Uh, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Um, and, and one of the main reasons, and um, you know, there's, there's lots of material that one could read on this, but one of the main reasons, at least to my own mind, that this has reference to a regenerate person is the, is the 22nd verse where Paul says, I, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Uh, an unsaved person can't do that. They can't joyfully concur with the law of God. They don't glory in the law of God. They don't delight in the law of God. And Paul says here he joyfully concurs with the law. So, and also the idea, he refers to himself as, as a wretched man. Um, and again, to me, that's, that's the idea that the Spirit of God has to be working in a person's heart, and we're never quite what we want to be, right? And we never attain perfection. We're never completely conformed to the image of Christ. And I, I think this fits in. Remember Job towards the end of that book? Remember what he says about himself? I abhor myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. And so I think Paul here, saying the same thing that Job was saying, saying the, the same thing that Isaiah, remember in chapter 6, um, I'm a man of unclean lips, I dwell among a people of unclean lips. So I think the Apostle Paul here, he's referring to himself as a, as a regenerate man. And so this would be another example of remaining sin. 
And um, one that I initially, I'll just mention this kind of in passing because in my Bible reading, um, uh, every August I get to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, and David, every year he commits adultery and has Uriah murdered, and it's just like clockwork. And so he just hasn't, he hasn't learned anything. But anyway, but what's amazing to me about David is um, he was a man after God's own heart, right? He wrote the Psalms. You read the Psalms, and then he wrote this, but he did this. Uh, and that's a great example of remaining sin. Then you have other examples in the Old Testament. Uh, Lot did some things he shouldn't have done. Noah did some things he shouldn't have done. And other examples that may come to mind. So uh, those are just a few thoughts with the reality, the, the fact of remaining sin. And so now uh, let me just read paragraph 5 in your, your hearing here. Um, says, the most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends. Um, so the, the general point here seems to be that God leaves his children so that they will, they will learn to trust him. And, and they, they, all, they learn something about themselves as well in these kind of situations. Uh, R.C. Sproul, in his Truths So We Confess, um, has a helpful statement here. I'll read. There's one in your notes here. But he says this. Um, this has an important practical and spiritual application to our own Christian pilgrimage. Every earnest Christian has experienced what saints call the dark night of the soul. This refers to a period in your personal relationship with God when it seems he's left you alone. Listen to the painful, anguished cries of Luther in the midst of his experiences, or listen to David as he cries, Answer me speedily, O Lord, for my spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, lest I be like those who go down into the pit. Psalm 143 and verse 7. And then probably even more to the point, this is uh, in your notes, right at the bottom of the first page. This is from, this is from the same source here. Sproul says, The fact that Christ has taken our, our punitive wrath does not prevent us from experiencing God's corrective wrath. Section 5 is talking about this when it says to chastise them for their former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humble. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Not one of us has begun to grasp the full extent and gravity of his own transgressions. We tend to give ourselves the highest possible approval rating and our enemies the lowest. We see every picadillo they commit as evidence of their despicable corruption. Remember how the speck in our brother's eye commands our attention and how the plank in our own eye is difficult to see because we do not want to see it. Sometimes God says, like it or not, you're going to see it because I'm going to step aside here and remove my blessing from you until you do. Sometimes we will not and cannot see it until God's chastening reduces us to this broken state. So this morning, in our, at least in the next kind of section of time, we'll bring out this idea of God's purpose in permitting um, his children to be left, at least to some degree, greater de- degrees than usual, to the corruption of their own hearts. And I've, I, I've chosen two examples that I think are helpful. And, and the first one, if you would turn to Mark chapter 14 and verse 66. Mark chapter 14 and verse 66. This is the uh, example of the Apostle Peter. 
Mark 14, and then verse 66. Mark 14, 66. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know no excuse me, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. And he went out onto the porch. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, Before a rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And he began to weep. Well, J.C. Ryle has some helpful comments in this. This is from his expository thoughts in the Gospels. He says, let us learn in the first place from these verses how far and how shamefully a great saint may fall. Peter was an eminent apostle, had received special commendation from our Lord's lips. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He'd enjoyed special privileges, had special mercy shown to him. Here he declares that he knows not him whom he had accompanied and lived with for three years. He declared that he knows not him who had healed his own wife's mother, taken him up into the Mount of Transfiguration, saved him from drowning in the Sea of Galilee. And he not only denies his master once, but three times. And he not only denies him simply, but does it cursing and swearing. And above all, he does all this in the face of the plainest warnings. And in spite of his own loud protestation that he would do nothing of the kind, but rather die. Well, then James Edwards, in a helpful commentary, on verse 68, he says, The first no tends to um, denote theoretical knowledge, and the second term, understand, practical knowledge. So he, he comments, Peter's denial is thus a total denial in theory and practice. And then he adds this other thought here. The third accusation is the boldest, and so is Peter's denial. Uh, the Greek is coarse and explicit. He begin to curse and swear, I do not know this man that you speak of. Well, I think at least a conclusion or two we can draw here is that, that Peter learned something about himself that was not very pretty, um, he, but he needed to be left to himself to learn it. And that probably especially would be uh, the, the folly of self-reliance because he was very sure that he would not deny the Lord. And what he learned here, of course, that he did deny the Lord, and so it would be not to rely on himself. And, and I think if you go back to paragraph, the, the paragraph that we read, um, this this embodies much of what the paragraph teaches um, on, on the, negatively the most wise righteous God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts and if you drop down positively to raise them to a more close and constant dependence of their support upon himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin. And, and so the, the conclusion here would be that Peter learned something about himself and there would have been a greater dependence on the person of Christ, greater understanding of the need for him to rely upon the person of Christ. And then um, a, a final comment on the third, pages of, of your, third page of your notes by J.C. Ryle. Um, he says, um, these things are written to show the church of Christ what human nature is, even in the best of men. 
They're intended to teach us that even after conversion and renewal of the Holy Spirit, believers are compassed with infirmity and liable to fall. They are meant to impress upon us the immense importance of daily watchfulness, prayerfulness, and humility. So long as we are in the body, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Then a second example that I think would be helpful is 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. This has to do with Paul's thorn in the flesh. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verses 7 through 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 7 through 10. <clears throat> you may think here, because this is the end of your notes, we're almost done. Such is not the case. Um, so, 2 Corinthians 12 beginning in verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me, notice this, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I employed the Lord three times, that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, this is a, quite a different situation from the, excuse me, from the Apostle Peter um, on, on the part of the Apostle Paul. As one looks at this passage, I, a first question, I don't know how much time to spend on this, would be, what is the thorn in the flesh? Um, and part of the answer um, in, in terms of is how we take this term flesh. Hodge indicates it could refer to a corrupt nature. Um, another indicates a, in a moral sense it could be a reference to Paul's unredeemed humanity or it could refer to the physical body. Uh, if you're familiar with the ESV study Bible, uh, the flesh, this, the thorn in the flesh could refer to inner psychological struggles um, because of his earlier persecution of the church. Um, <clears throat> Paul's opponents continue to, to persecute him, or it could be some kind of physical affliction, makes the most sense to me, or some sort of demonic harassment. Um, Charles Hodge uh, and most commentators feel like it was some kind of physical ailment, if one understands the, the, the flesh in a literal sense, some kind of bodily affliction. Uh, Philip Edgecombe Hughes, I won't read all of this, um, it's actually pretty amazing how many suggestions there are in what this um, what this actually is. I won't. <clears throat> yeah, several pages here. It starts out with uh, the Church Father Tertullian has one thing in mind. Uh, Saint Augustine, perhaps some bodily pain. Uh, Luther, um, others, and then he gets to the end here. Sir William Ramsey, Ramsey thinks it's malarial fever. Then he gets to a section. He says many other solutions have been advanced, such as hysteria, hypochondria, gallstones, gout, rheumatism, sciatica, gastritis, leprosy, lice in the head, deafness, dental infection, um, and no doubt there will be fresh proposals in years to come. For this is a matter which is unlikely to be regarded as closed, while there are minds to speculate on it. Uh, we have already indicated, while we do not wish to disparage sane speculation, we are convinced that the very anonymity of this particular affliction has been and is still productive of far wider blessing to the members of the church universal than would have been the case had it been possible to identify with accuracy the specific nature of the disability in question. Well, I won't read you his whole explanation, but basically the points he makes make is this. Is this um, we don't know what it is. 
And it's good that we don't know what it is because that way we can apply it to all different kinds of difficulties that come into our life. If we know exactly what it is, we might think, well, okay, it only applies to this. But he's saying it's good. We don't really know what it is. So it has much more of a, of a universal kind of, uh, of application. Um, so there's quite a disparity of opinion on that. Um, some of the, the, some, something that I think is helpful to our thinking here is um, one here, what, the, the factor that it introduces is God's providence includes what he will permit Satan to do. His providence includes what he will permit Satan to do. Um, Paul recognized it was a messenger of Satan, but he doesn't speak back necess- necessarily to that, that particular messenger. It would, it would be similar, let me just read to you from Job uh, chapter 2 and verse 6, if I can find it real quick, Job chapter 2. And verse 6, which reads like this, So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. So what Satan can do is under the permission of the Lord. That's what's brought into the, into the, into the factor here. Another um, text, you might just jot this down, would be Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10. That's where Jesus talked about some of you are going to be in prison and you're going to die there. And Satan is going to put you there. And Jesus makes the point that Satan is going to put you there. And so obviously he could keep him from putting him there. So that's just another text that you can consider in that regard. And, and here, um, it, it doesn't mention any sin. But I, I, I think that the strong implication, it would be pride to keep me from exalting myself. A thorn in the flesh was given me. So the providence here, with the, the particular sin that would help to combat against would be pride. Because the Apostle Paul speaks about so that he would not exalt himself. So those are at least a couple of passages that are, I, I think that are, are helpful. And let me just um, close by offering a lesson or two uh, that we can extract from this one, a lesson that relates to the fact of remaining sin. Number one, it underscores the need to keep your heart with all diligence. Uh, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. And... Um, uh, another lesson is it, because um, I'm going to spend, okay, we're almost done, but just, so one lesson would be it, it, it underscores the importance of keeping our own heart with all diligence. Another is that I, I think it facilitates compassion for brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling with various kinds of things, because we all struggle with different things, right? Some people, you wonder, what, well, how, come you're, how, come that's a, how come that's a problem for you? Well, it is. So it helps us to be, I think, a little bit more compassionate towards other people. And, and then a, a final lesson. Um, turn, if you would, to First Thessalonians chapter five and verse twenty-two. <clears throat> Excuse me, First Thessalonians chapter five and verse twenty-two. And um, a lesson, another lesson from the fact of remaining sin. First Thessalonians five twenty-two. It helps us to apply these words: abstain from every form of evil. And if we ask the question, why should we abstain from every form of evil? Answer number one, well, the Bible says so. That's a good answer. But kind of a secondary answer is it's because of the condition of the human heart. It's because of remaining sin. That's why you abstain from every form of evil. Now, if you would, turn to the book of Proverbs. And there's there's lots of verses which relate to this idea of of staying away from sin and staying away from things that would lead to sin because of the condition of the human heart. Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 12, for example. Proverbs 27 and verse 12 says this, 
A prudent man sees evil and hides himself. The naive proceed and pay the penalty. So a wise man, a prudent man, sees the evil and hides himself. And then if you just turn back, there's, there's lots of verses that are uh, along this, the same line. Chapter 22 and verse 3, the prudent sees the same points. The prudent sees the evil and hides himself. The naive go on and are punished for it. And then if you go back further, Proverbs 14 and verse 16, Proverbs 14 and verse 16 says, a wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is arrogant and careless. The, the opposite of that, to turn back chapter 13 and verse 19, says, Desire realizes sweet to the soul, but it's an abomination to fools to turn away from evil. That's what we should do, but to a fool, it's, it's an abomination to turn away from evil. So it helps us to apply the, the, this whole class of verses that relate to turning away from evil, staying a, a long ways from evil. And I'll just mention to you kind of a, a resource if you, <clears throat> if you have time. In the works of Jonathan Edwards, he's got a sermon um, on this particular theme. It's called Temptation and Deliverance. It has to do with um, Joseph's great temptation and deliverance in Genesis Chapter 39, verse 12, he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. And one of the points that Edwards makes here is why we should avoid what tends to sin. Not only sin itself, but things that would lead to sin and things that tend to sin. And I'll just leave you with this. One of the, one of the ways he illustrates it, he puts it like this. It's evident that we ought not only to avoid sin, but things that expose and lead to sin, because this is the way we act in things that pertain to our temporal interest. Men avoid not only those things that are themselves the hurt or ruin of their temporal, temporal interest, but also the things that tend to or expose it. Because they love their temporal lives, they will not only actually avoid killing themselves, but they are very careful to avoid those things that bring their lives into danger, though they do not certainly know, but they may escape. They're careful not to pass rivers and deep waters on rotten ice, though they do not certainly know that they shall fall through and be drowned. They'll not only avoid those things that would be in themselves the ruin of their estates, as setting their own houses on fire and burning them up with their substance, taking their money and throwing it into the sea, but they carefully avoid those things by which their estates are exposed. They have their eyes about them, are careful with whom they deal, and they're watchful, that, that they may be not overreached in their bargains, and they do not lay themselves open to knaves and fraudulent persons. Knaves would be a deceitful person. So the idea that they do that in the temporal realm, we should do that in the spiritual realm as well. Avoid the things that lead to sin because of the damage it would do to a person's soul. So there you go. Um, shall we pray? Father, we thank you this morning for uh, the time together. We thank you for your holy word. We pray that uh, you would cause us to uh, understand it. I, I thank you for uh, the revelation of your holy scripture. I pray that you would take what we have covered today and apply it uh, to our own souls and, and to our own hearts uh, for your honor and for your glory. And pray that our fellowship would be sweet and encouraging to our souls. And as we gather together for worship today, we, we pray that you would meet with us and, and give us some true deep sense of your incomparable excellency and the incomparable excellency of spiritual and holy things. So we pray you, you would bless the rest of our day together. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.